So we have two weeks left in our teaching series in the book of 2 Samuel, this week and next week. Uh, and as I've said, as we've been closing this up, I know for many you're like, okay, already, enough with 2 Samuel. And thanks for sticking with us. There is a bit of a repetitive sort of storyline that goes through this, uh, but I think it's a, it's a critical one for us. Now, as we get toward the end here, we get some interesting poetry from David. And so we are in 2 Samuel chapter 22. You can feel free to turn there if you like, or feel free to just listen. Uh, this is a poem that David wrote, a psalm really that he wrote. You'll find nearly the exact same thing in Psalm 18 in the book of Psalms. Uh, and it's something that he wrote earlier in his life. Again, here at the end of 2 Samuel, these are not chronologically uh, organized, as it were. Uh, the storyteller is putting these things here at the end to sort of sum up the storyline. And so he, he talked uh, in chapter 21, what we talked about last week, in terms of seeing God again as the true hero of Israel and taking our eyes off of earthly kings and seeing God as the provider and the rescuer and the one who can and will lead Israel with integrity and righteousness. And now in 2 Samuel chapter 22, we find this psalm, our song of praise from David, who is in essence saying the exact same thing about who God is. And he's really saying it from, I would suggest, the beginning of his reign as king. And most of this psalm has to do with God's provision and protection of David uh, while Saul was hunting him down, so to speak, and, and making his life miserable. So let me read this. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is the stronghold, my refuge and my savior from violent people you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came to to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky, out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord 
was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and kept myself from sin. You get a little bit of why we think this happened earlier in David's life, right? The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles don't give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God. The rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me. Who puts the nations under me. Who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man, you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, amongst the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Let me pray. God, thank you for this psalm of worship that testifies to your personal care, your constant faithfulness, and your ultimate victory. Help us now as we attempt to make sense of it in hearing your voice, I pray. In your name, amen. Have you ever found yourself in need of solid ground? (laughs) 
Uh, we were at the beach this weekend. I did not go in the water because it's far too early in the season to go in ocean water anywhere in the Northeast. You all know that. My son Tyler does not know that. But have you ever been in the ocean and suddenly, because of waves or current or whatever, you go to put your feet down and there's nowhere to put your feet down? Have you ever found that? And there's a bit of, little bit of panic that goes along with that. Uh, and there's certainly more panic if you're swimming for a long time and you can't find that. So imagine the, the imagery that's going on here with David as he is trying to shape a poetic uh, picture for us of what it's like to live a life or a length or season of life kind of doggy paddling for your life in the midst of a vast ocean with no place to put your feet. And then, almost as if out of nowhere, finding a place to stand. This is the heart of David. And for David, the rock that he calls God is not just only a safe place to stand, but also becomes a barrier or a buffer for him against his enemies. It's why he uses the word so frequently in this passage of Scripture, in this psalm. Uh, And then when he records it down for the nation of Israel in Psalm 18, God is a rock, he's a refuge, he's a fortress, he's a savior, he's a horn, he's a shield. God is all of these things. This is what David wants us to know. And so logically we ask ourselves, well, how is it that God can say, or excuse me, that David can say this about God? And if we follow through the psalm, we find that David calls God a rock because he has experienced God's personal rescue and care, right? He's experienced God's personal rescue and care. We easily skip over certain uh, realities in a psalm like this because we're used to hearing these kinds of things. But notice that he calls God, my God. Did you notice that? I mean, this is a stunning thing to say. It's not stunning for us because we know that God is our God. But you think of the God of the universe, what it would mean to call him yours. A personal possessive pronoun. I thought about it. I don't know the phone number, but I thought, man, it'd be, it'd be interesting if I stood up here and attempted to call the White House right now, right? Call the White House, put it on, uh, on a speakerphone and see what happens. Who knows? Maybe I'd get through, but unlikely, right? You're probably not getting through. And then, it, well, so maybe I'd try to call the governor of Pennsylvania, because certainly that would be easier, and I'm sure I wouldn't get through to him. And then we could try the senator and the congressman. We could even try our local people, and we probably can't get through to them. But notice how stunning then it is to hear David not only call God my God, but get through to him immediately. We take these things for granted, but this is stunning that David wouldn't say he's a God or he's the God. He's my God, and he's my God because when I call to him, he hears me instantly and he responds to my call. Do you hear the two emotional things that God says? about what's going on in David's life, the first thing he says is he's angry. Did you hear that? And he's not angry at David. He's angry at what's happening to David. Sometimes it's difficult for us, right? We instantly somehow think in our rebellious flair that when things aren't going our way, that God is angry with us. When really, David rightly puts us in the position to say that God is angry with us, that this is happening to us. You see, there's a very different 
picture of who God is. And I love verse 20. Uh, Verse 20 for me, and I've talked to you many times about my personal struggle with anxiety, especially being in confined spaces. Verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 22 is as close to a life verse as I've ever found in the scriptures that God brings David out into a spacious place. That frees my heart. Why does he do it? Because he delights in him. Not because David delights in God, but because God delights in David. Right? And David's experience with God is in this very personal way. He knows God in a personal way. He calls to God. God hears him, and David knows that God is angry about what's happening to him and takes delight in David personally. And so then it should not surprise us that God is going to provide rescue for David in dramatic fashion. Now, you may not have picked up on this, but let me help us out here for a minute. David is very much couching this personal experience and this psalm of worship in Exodus language. Okay? So we hear things like the waves crashing around me, and we should go right to the Red Sea. Right? Or things like, God's nostril breathing smoke and fire coming out of his mouth and him being surrounded in darkness and God coming down and it should give us a Sinai picture of God who comes to dwell with his people and there's a fire that represents his presence and there's smoke all around and there's darkness that Moses is in the midst of. And so David wants us to know that what's happening for him is no less significant no less miraculous, no less important, no less divinely intentional than what God did for the Israelites in the Exodus. You see this? And we may say, well, of course it's not. This is David. But if you go back and read the storyline of David as he's running from Saul, you aren't going to find any of the things we just read. There's no smoking nostrils. There's no burning fire. There's no crashing waves. None of this exists. And so David is speaking in hyperbole. So it's not true, but actually it is true. Does it make sense? And here's how I want us to understand this. I think that David is able to see God for who he is. And in so doing, it opens his heart and his mind to God's saving protection in much more profound ways than maybe we oftentimes see our world. And this can help us as we're experiencing life uh, on a daily basis. The first is that David, I think, understands that God is not bound to the physical world. That God is spiritual. And so in God is the spiritual and the physical together. And so God comes in rescue in both places, right? There's the the famous way in which Jesus is talking to Peter. and, And Jesus says to Peter, who's real bold with his language. He's saying, oh, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. There's this whole spiritual dimension that, that uh, the battles are going on and that, that Peter is focused on the earthly world and he's going to be big and brave and strong. And Jesus is like, if God is not fighting on your side, you're going to be sifted like wheat. And David kind of sees this. And so he's able to see his life and the things that are happening in a very providential way instead of a coincidental way. Does that make sense? In a very providential way instead of coincidental or circumstantial. So, for instance, the word rock 
is interesting that David would call God a rock because there is a, a time in David's flight from Saul where there's a reference to a rock. And the reference to a rock is actually a physical mountain. Saul is pursuing David, and the only thing between them is a rock, a mountain, as it were. And for David, as he reflects back on this, he's able to see that it is not coincidental that he finds himself between these two things. It is not geographic circumstance, but it actually is the providence of God. In the same way, at another moment in time, when Saul is just about to capture or get to David, the Philistines come and fight against the Israelites, and Saul is called away. Coincidental, circumstantial, or providential? You choose. David would say, providential. Let me give you some personal examples to hopefully bring this into our world just a little bit. We're not running from Saul. We're not hiding behind physical mountains. I remember a number of years ago, my dad came up to visit us, and he had just had a, a few tests done. And in one of his tests, the, whatever the levels are that, that indicate potential prostate cancer were high. And he was nervous, and it was uncomfortable. And we went out to dinner together, and before he left, I just asked, Dad, can, can we pray for you? And so I remember on our front porch, I remember Rach and I and my mom, we, we put our hands on my dad and we prayed for him. We prayed for healing. We asked Jesus to, to take that. And, and, and a couple of weeks later, he had the same test and the levels were back to normal. And one of the things he had been doing to do that is, I guess, and, and those of you who are medically inclined will know this, is that sometimes those levels can be high because you're dehydrated because you haven't drank enough water. And so my dad had been drinking lots of water, right? And so mine, forget doctors, forget my dad, me, the one who prayed for him and asked to pray for him, my natural reaction was, see, it was just the dehydration, right? Because I live in the coincidental and the circumstantial. And could it have been? I suppose it could have been, but why would I not be inclined to give God glory for providentially and sovereignly moving, be it in providing water, or physical healing for my dad. You see the different ways that we view these things. When we first moved to Bethlehem, uh, and I don't say any of these things to scare you, but there is significant spiritual warfare that happens in this area, and it's not different from other places in the world, but there's significance here. I remember when we first came here, a friend of ours and another pastor in our district getting a, a sense, a word from God that he felt that he wanted to share with us that dark, darkness is retreating. Darkness is retreating. And a few weeks later, um, I was in Jackson's room. He was little, kindergarten, and I was praying for him. And uh, he, was, he had been to sleep, and I was coming up later, but I was in his room, was praying for him. And all I can tell you is that there, were, there was some kind of manifestation that was there in that room that was other, right? And there was a sense in which there was a battle going on for space in that room. And I remember praying and, and, and asking in the power of Jesus that this would be gone and that he would go. And there was just a sense of peace as it washed away. And I remember distinctly giving glory to God in that moment. Every single night since then, when we pray for our boys, we pray in a very specific way for them in their bedrooms that only the things that belong to God's kingdom would be here. 
that everything else would be gone, that he'd be protected through the night. We've never, ever had another incident like that. And you know what I think most of the time? Well, this because it just didn't happen, right? But a providential look would say, well, you prayed and God heard your voice because he's your God and he's responded. There's two different ways to view the world. Do you understand? And there's so many other bits and pieces of life in which it's just easy for us. And I'm not saying that God doesn't work in the natural order of things, but it's just easy for us to claim circumstance or coincidence rather than providence. And David will have none of it because God is his God and he's the God of the universe. And he's acting on behalf of him because he delights in him. I think that we will never fully understand the valor and the fierceness with which God, the God of the universe, your God, fights in the spiritual realms on your behalf with daily and minute-by-minute persistence. Why? Because He delights in you. He loves you. He's angered that the enemy would come against you. And David is able to see not just the physical, coincidental, circumstantial, but also the spiritual reality. Another thing, right, the famous, famous saying is what? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? You have David writing this psalm, not from a cave in Adullam, not in the midst of running from Saul, but after the fact. He's probably already been installed as king over Israel, and he's now reflecting back on the journey that has got him to this place. And he's now able to sit down and see the whole picture in his rearview mirror and say, this was God. This wasn't me. And God actually acted in a gigantic exodus-like way, even if from time to time it felt like God had abandoned me in the day by day. Does this make sense? Because David is able to see that God is not bound by time like we are. He's able to stop and pause and look back and see things holistically and say, God has acted in an Exodus-like way for me. Here's the truth of it, right? Sometimes we're in the throes of it, and it feels like the enemy is gaining ground. Imagine being the Israelites in the Exodus. The plague's coming. Finally hearing Pharaoh say, you are set free. God had won a great victory. And what immediately happens as they break camp and go away? Pharaoh changes his mind. He regathers his army and he pursues them, right? Imagine what it felt like for them. Wait a minute. I thought we were God's people. I thought we were redeemed. And they get to the edge of the water. Imagine this. And Moses raises his rod, right? And the the sea parts and they think, oh, God really is for us. And they go into the sea. Imagine the the experience of the sea parting and being in dry land and, and seeing your escape to the other side. But then also imagine being halfway across and looking back and seeing the army coming right into the same open space and pursuing you. And sometimes what we have to believe in the throes of it is that eventually the sea does close back in on the enemy, right? That the advancing and the pursuing army doesn't make it to the other side, but we do in the kingdom of God. And David, now sitting on the other side with the sea closed on his enemy, can say, yes, God has done for me exactly what he did for Israel. 
He has done an Exodus-like thing in my life. See, the Exodus story for David gives him the place of faith and the structure to place his life in. And he can say, my God is the God of Moses. Then how much more for us that we can say, my God is the God of David and the God of Moses. That we have a storyline to place our life in. You may not be able to believe this now, but let me promise you that God is doing Exodus-like miraculous rescue in your life now. And when you are able to reflect upon it, perhaps even years later, you will look back and say, only by the miraculous hand of God can I be in the place I'm in now. And so what is the natural response to this kind of personal care from God, it is faithfulness, right? There's this weird thing, and it's hard for scholars, it's hard for any of us who who know and believe the gospel to wrestle with, where David says things like, yeah, well, God rescued me because I love him. He rescued me because I'm holy. He rescued me because I'm, you know, I do the right things. I don't sin. Well, first of all, we've already read the story, David. We know that you sin, like really badly you sin, right? So his point is not some kind of strange works righteousness where he's saying, I earned this rescue. Because look at me, I lived this holy and good life. It has nothing to do with that. The word righteousness is actually a difficult word to understand. And sometimes, and in fact, I would say oftentimes, it has less to do with a bank account of holiness and more to do with a standing with God. And so I would suggest to you that when David is writing these things, a couple of things are happening. The first is that he's saying he is amazed that he has this kind of standing with God that can provide this kind of divine blessing and rescue in his life. He's amazed that he can have a standing that makes him holy and without sin. That he can have a standing that that takes away these things and is instead embraced by God. In fact, he's saying, I would suggest to you, that it is the very faithfulness of God that breeds his own personal faithfulness. That his experience with God's faithfulness causes him to be more faithful. The more he's experiencing God's faithfulness, the more he's able to live in victory and all these other things in life. But there is another thing that's important to say here, and I think David's scratching at this, and sometimes when you are in a grace-based environment, especially like this one, it's important every once in a while just to pause and say this. And that is that it matters how you live. Right? Grace is not a license to go live however you want to live because God's rescued you and he loves you. He has rescued you and he has loved you. And Paul actually, in Romans chapter 6, is dealing with this very thing. He says, so if this gospel is true, then shouldn't I just... Go live a crazy, terrible life because then grace is going to be even more prevalent. And his answer is, in a Greek, meganoito, a very strong, may it never be like that. Why? Because if you truly are experiencing the faithfulness of God, it is causing you to be faithful to God. To want to just live in utter license is to have not really actually experienced God's faithfulness in your life. Does that make sense? That it changes how we live. And that as we are faithful people, it actually does. Now let me explain this before you jump to conclusions. It actually does increase God's faithfulness to us. 
This is not works righteousness. This is not saying you entitle yourself to more of God. But when you live in faithfulness to God, the first thing that it does is it opens your heart and your eyes to see God's faithfulness to you that you would not see or experience otherwise. It's still happening, but you wouldn't be seeing it and wrestling with it as it's happening. Because you have a heart that now is willing to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances because it's willing to believe God's good and perfect will in your life even in the midst of craziness in the now. And it gives you, in the same way Jesus would say about his parables, eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing and saying that you might not otherwise hear and see. Does it make sense? So you are tapping into, experience the faithfulness that God is already giving. But there's also a sense in which your faithfulness to God enables you to live more in the fullness of the life that God offers, right? And I think you need to go no further than the Garden of Eden. The truth is that life is better in the garden than it is east of the garden. True or false? Right? And so the lesson learned from that is to live a faithful life is to avoid rebellion. To avoid rebellion is to avoid distance between you and God. To avoid distance between you and God is to more fully experience the life that God has offered. Now, we understand that through Jesus, much of that has been rectified. I'm not suggesting to you, you break God's law and he's going to strike you with lightning, like that kind of difference. But there is a difference in terms of experiencing the full life and blessings and joy that comes with living a life committed to God. That God's personal care for us leads to our faithfulness to him. And then I think faithfulness leads to worship. Right, church? Faithfulness leads to worship. It's the whole reason David is writing this poem. He's writing it in worship to God. Why? Because God was his rock. Why was he his rock? Because he gave him personal care. Why did he give him personal care? Because God was faithful to David. And that has increased David's faithfulness to God, and David's only response is worship. That is that the faithful worship God because he's been faithful to them. Does that make sense? I think that's right. And not only has this become a personal worship, personal worship song, that is, David is not just writing this in his journal so he can go back and look at it. He puts it into the Psalter, which becomes a national prayer and songbook for the people of Israel because he wants them to know that their story is just as much seated in this story as it is for him. And in so doing, he teaches us something radically important about worship. And listen to me, please. That is that worship is not about experience as much as it is about reminding yourself of who God is. Right? That is that a big part of worship is to remind ourselves of who God is, what He has, is, and will do in our lives. Because we need to be constantly re-centered because the world is telling us a very different story. This is why we gather to worship. It's why we gather to listen to teachings. It's why we sing songs of praise. It's why we pray when we're gathered together. Yes, we do it to glorify God, and that is central and important. And yes, we hope that it is somewhat enjoyable, but the purpose of church gatherings is not entertaining an audience. 
It is reminding them that God actually is who He says He is, and therefore you can call Him your God. I pray that sermons are enjoyable for you. I don't know if they are or not, but I pray that they are, at least sometimes. Hopefully our music is good and easy to sing with, but those things should always be secondary to the fact that the sermons and the songs point you to who God is and remind you constantly that this is a God who you can and should be faithful to because he's been faithful to you. That God delights in you. Far be it from me to condemn anything. But unfortunately in the church, especially in our day, worship and church gatherings have become much more about creating an audience experience than pointing an audience to Jesus. Again, that is no excuse to preach boring sermons or to have lousy music. But exciting sermons and good music should always be about Jesus and not about entertaining. And so then, David seats his story in the story of the Exodus. And I love how he ends this psalm, that God gives his kings great victories. And of course, we know that the ultimate son of David is Jesus himself. And the ultimate great victory that God gives is to the great king named Jesus. And that Jesus himself does not just seat his ministry in the midst of the Exodus, but he delivers for his people the ultimate Exodus from the ultimate enemy. Why was he baptized? To reenact the dramatic story of God's rescue from out of water. And it begins his ministry that announces the kingdom of God has come that ultimately leads to a Passover Exodus-style sacrifice so that the people of God can stand on the other side of the sea and say, my God is the God of Moses and the God of David and the God of Joshua and the God of Isaiah and the God of Ezekiel and the God of Elijah and the God of Elisha and ultimately, my God is Jesus. So no one should be able to say that God is my rock more than you and me. No one should be able to have experienced God's personal care more than you and me. No one should be able to declare the faithfulness of God and therefore attempt to live in faithfulness more than you and me. Perhaps you find yourself in the throes of it this morning. Or perhaps you will find yourself in the throes of it at some time in the near future. It's what it means to live life on a place called earth, right? The way that you respond to it, I would suggest to you, is in the reverse order of how this psalm goes. If you are in the midst of muck, if it feels like the waves are crashing around you, David wrote this psalm not just to praise God for what he had done, but I assume to, rem- to help him remember in the future what God had done when he needs to be reminded again. Can I tell you that what you need to do, as counterintuitive as it sounds, when you are desperate for rescue, is to stop and worship God. To stop and worship God. And to be reminded of who God is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. 
And as you pause and make space to worship God, you will come face to face with His faithfulness. And as you truly experience His faithfulness to you, it will conjure up faithfulness in your own heart to take steps forward, to last, to move to the next breath, to move to the next day, to look higher to the purposes that God has, to see the spiritual world and not just the physical world, to consider time not just in the the now, but in the whole of what God is doing. And as you do that, you will come face to face with God's personal care for you. Not because He's the God, but because He's your God. That when you called Him, He heard you. And He was angry about what was happening to you. And He came because He delights in you. And this is what I know about God from personal experience. He will lead you into spacious places because He truly does delight in you. He is your rock, your refuge, your shield and your Savior. Can I pray with you?